Welcome to another episode of the Macro Visor podcast, coming to you on Fedruple Witching Week, where we have had CPI, PPI, retail sales, flash PMI, of course, the Fed, ECB, and Bank of England. And today, we're having the largest options expiration ever with over $4 trillion of gamma, $4.9 trillion, in fact, rolling off. Most of that already, as we're recording in the AM, $3.2 trillion rolling off. So just a very exciting week. But before we dive into everything, I'd like to welcome my wonderful co-host, Aisha. Hi, ma'am. It's great to be back on the podcast. Uh, what a week we've had. A week full of surprises, right? Particularly from all the central banks. Um, we saw the Fed go one way, and then we saw the ECB go the other way, and Bank of England sort of stay somewhere in the middle. So lots to cover this week. Um, so let's get started. Absolutely. Let's start with the data. So CPI was interesting. We got the data for November, which showed headline coming down, which is what we want to see. But core inflation remains sticky, and certainly one would think it's a little higher than what the Fed would want to see. What do you think? Absolutely. So I think something that everybody was focusing on was as well the super core, right? So that's basically uh, services inflation, pure services inflation. And we saw that sort of increase year on year and month on month. On the other hand, so basically uh, we've seen rentals still stay where they are. So there's no not much of an acceleration or deceleration. Um, but that's not great, right? So even if there's no increase or decrease in number, that still means that rents are going up at 0.4%, you know, month on month. So all in all, I don't think that the Fed has reached what they want to see. We're still far above where we should be. Um, in terms of food inflation as well, that still remains, on, you know, positive as in positive growth month on month, uh, albeit, you know, it's slowing down. But I think just this, um, you know, deflationary impulse from energy has sort of given inflation uh, a whole new meaning now. But that's not the end in all of it, right? So we have the other categories that are much more important that actually impact people far more um, than just energy. And uh, it's definitely something that the Fed should be considering, but it seems like they've already declared victory on inflation here. Yeah, it is quite interesting, especially with housing prices coming back up year over year. We see mortgage rates dropping to the lowest levels we've had in many, many months. Home builders are rallying as if all the problems they could possibly face are behind them. And that's likely to put some pressure back into shelter, albeit with a lagged effect. And shelter was the second leading component of core after transport. And the other part that is perhaps worthy of some concern is, do we continue to see this drawdown in energy prices? I would be inclined to think that maybe we're closer to a bottom here. And so some of that deflation that helps to draw down the headline numbers may be rolling off, whereas within core, we may actually see some stickiness or even a modicum of acceleration. So you're right, it's, it's nothing like what the Fed would want to see. In fact, I found that meeting extremely surprising. The next data point we got on Fed Day was PPI, which also showed in line, we're seeing some deceleration there. There's probably more promising news in the PPI pipeline than CPI, but again, energy was helping to lead this decline. And the question becomes, is that sustainable? What do you think? 
So the energy component is always volatile, as you rightly pointed out. And going into next year, we have certain factors here which uh, probably should be noted, right? Um, so as of now, this is the season where um, energy prices are usually lower. And that's because, you know, we have production volumes picking up. Uh, we also have refineries coming back online and we have, you know, uh, that pushing down gasoline prices a little bit. So all in all, and, and this year, um, the U.S. has actually uh, produced a lot more than expected, first of all, and so has Brazil and Guyana. So with all these things combined, I think what we're seeing is an oversupply in the market. But And for next year, the forecasts also show that the market remains oversupplied. However, I don't exactly... Um, I don't exactly agree with that forecast completely. So it's predicated on the fact that there will be a recession globally. Okay, so either you have a situation where you're oversupplied on oil because there is a recession, which is a negative issue, or you don't have a recession. And then therefore, you also actually have higher demand and that pushes up, you know, um, uh, oil prices, right? The other factor here is probably China. So we have no idea what's going on with China. We've got we got industrial production data today, which shows that it's you know increasing. It actually came out much higher than expected, um, and we are seeing exports and imports improve slightly. But it still remains a wild card. We we don't know what's happening there. But in the global scheme of things, if we see central banks easing across the world, so not just the developed markets, but also in um, emerging markets, we're going to see a lot of manufacturing come back. We're going to see a lot of activity come back. So all of these activity data, you know, which is now in contractionary territory, the PMIs that are in contractionary territory, will start to move up with new orders, output, so on and so forth. And that obviously will create demand for energy. And I don't think in that case we will be a over, like highly oversupplied market. And plus we have the SPR to be refilled as well. Um, so everything considered, I think the impetus is for oil to go up next year, uh, as in oil prices to go up next year versus actually coming far below you know, what, where we are right now. So you're right, this isn't very sustainable. I'm sorry, that was a long-winded answer. This isn't very sustainable um, at that level. So energy prices, I, I think they still go up next year or at least remain high, which makes it difficult for inflation to come down drastically. Of course, absolutely. And I, I love all the points you made there. And, you know, just like energy prices are volatile, so are forecasts for energy supply and demand, because just a few months ago, these same forecasts, we're looking for a deficit next year. Now we're looking for oversupply. So it's interesting how kind of all over the map uh, these outlooks are. But I, I love the points that you brought up because I think they're very important. The emerging market central banks have been leading the cutting cycle. And now we're seeing the most cuts that we've seen in years by these central banks really starting to rejuvenate their newer credit cycles. And now developed uh, country central banks seem to be following along with the Fed potentially leading the way, signaling as many as three cuts next year. And I think this is a good segue into the Fed. The one last thing I wanted to mention before we go there is just a brief coverage of retail sales. Now, the overall headline number, 
better than expected. And that seems encouraging on the surface. But drilling down within the data, autos were what led the way higher and they were what led the way lower last month. Discretionary spend on general merchandise is actually pretty subdued during the holidays, which is maybe not the best sign. So retail sales month over month, bit of a mixed bag year over year, however, showing some signs of stabilizing. So let's drill into the Fed. I have to say, and I don't mean to ruffle any feathers here for any of our listeners, that was one of the worst press conferences I've ever seen by Powell. And the second worst was February of 2023, where he similarly similarly was very wishy-washy. And as you pointed out on Twitter, it looks like Powell really is embracing Fed speak. We didn't get a lot of clarity about anything. And that turnabout and the reason why the turnabout in policy, the classic Powell pivot, as it were, we didn't really get a very convincing answer as to why that was happening, don't you think? Absolutely. So for the most part, it seemed like he was very uncomfortable uh, during the whole press conference, it, almost like he didn't believe what he was saying. And I'm not too surprised with that reaction, given that he was saying something completely different uh, just two weeks ago. So it it makes me question what happened in those two weeks for him to make such a big turnaround and become so dovish. Because um, two weeks ago, he was talking about, you know, uh, still having to hike if need be. Um, and he was quite, you know, adamant about not having any rate cut or increasing rate cuts next year. So it's quite interesting. And the timing of their projections is also another thing that was quite interesting to me. So I didn't think that they would increase their rate cut projections right here because it felt to me that that would undo everything that they had done. And we can see that in the financial conditions, right? So already the market was pricing in higher rate cuts because of slower growth. And that's been happening since, I want to say, the end of October, beginning of November, which sort of saw financial conditions ease. Um, I think we saw the largest easing in 40 years. Um, Ever. So it was, Ever. Correct. So it was a very, very drastic, um, you know, easing in financial conditions. And so I thought that perhaps he waits until the March SEP, Summary of Economic Projections, to bring on, you know, higher uh, levels of rate cuts, so to change the projection on rate cuts. I was mistaken, um, and he did it this time. So my question here is, why do it now when you're already seeing financial conditions ease as they are, instead of doing it later on in March, right, when you could at least hold on to some of the tightening in the system? With his press conference, we've undone everything, almost everything now, right? And, and the impetus is for the market to go higher. I mean, absolutely. Lisa Bromwitz posted a great chart from Bloomberg. Their measure of financial conditions shows that everything has been done undone. And even before the meeting, that financial conditions were easier now than they were before the Fed started cutting, which is absolutely maddening to have this unaddressed in the meeting, to have some of these forces that were drivers of inflation, like home prices coming back up, energy showing signs of stabilizing, you know, services never really going into contraction, and cumulative inflation. The price gains that we've seen over time 
not seeing any signs of resetting now that the Fed's already starting to kind of turn the ship around. This is a big problem because, you know, central banks and policymakers have a completely different definition of inflation than everyone else who buys goods and services. For all of us real people, we look at inflation as where is the price now versus where was it last year or five years ago or 10 years ago. But what policymakers look at is what is the rate of change? And so as long as the rate of change slows, but prices are continuing to go up, they're okay. They want inflation, albeit at a lower rate. But for all of us people that actually have to work and put food on the table, you know, this ends up being a huge boost in our overall cost of living without commensurate gains in real wages over time. So what does that mean? It means that this Powell pivot reduces, if not eliminates the possibility of any relief for prices that it, and that's really a drag on the bottom 50% who have seen so much in, of an increase in their cost of living without that commensurate increase in their income. So this is something that we're keeping an eye on going into the next credit cycle because the other part of this that's a problem and it's something we've been talking about for a while is there is some structural inelasticity on the supply side in a number of key areas. And if the Fed's not willing to ameliorate that inelasticity by subduing demand as much as they need to, then it's likely that as they get back into easing, these constraints come online earlier in the credit cycle and boost inflation from already high prices. So we're a little bit concerned about what's happening here. You know, my opinion is, and and you said it great on Twitter, that, that, that Powell is kind of, moved from embracing Volcker to embracing Burns, making that same classic mistake. Now, we don't know what the Fed is worried about, what they might see on the horizon, but Aisha, you know what was really interesting to me? Is Christine Lagarde could not have been more different than Powell. You and I were talking after the Fed meeting, like, wow, what are we gonna expect from the ECB? Because tr traditionally, they're a little more dovish than the Fed. We didn't get that, did we? And, and you had a great interview on Oshark as this was happening. Absolutely. So going into that interview where I was to cover the ECB meeting and, uh, you know, the press conference, I was actually a little bit nervous because I thought, oh, my God, so now Powell is dovish. So everybody's going to be dovish. But earlier in the day, actually, we got the Bank of England and they were not dovish. Um, so there wasn't any press conference there, but basically they held rates and there wasn't much, you know, discussion. But it, there was some talk that there's no, there was no talk of rate cuts, let's put it that way. And then came the ECB, and Christine Lagarde could not be more clear. She was, I think the first three or four questions were, oh, but yesterday we heard Powell say this, what do you think? Okay, so, and, and I think that was a little insulting, in fact, so it's, it's not right for them to ask questions that way, um, but I'm being picky here. Um, <laughs> however, the one question that, somebody asked very you know poignantly was that okay so what what are we talking about in terms of rate cuts and she was so clear she just said there was no discussion of rate cuts this time so you know that's something that i had expected from powell because that sort of keeps the pressure on for a little while longer now don't forget uh, the ecb already has lower rates comparatively uh, they also have lower growth. They also have lower activity levels. So, in fact, the ECB is in a worse spot. And yet, they are worried about the fiscal impulse because they haven't, you know, 
sort of agreed, everyone has not agreed on what the fiscal policy is going to be. They still have a significantly large balance sheet, which they're talking about running off now, part of it, the PEP program, um, but very gradually. Um, and at the same time, they're also looking at wage growth. So labor unit cost growth there is significantly higher than they want it to be with productivity, uh, negative productivity, actually. So now their idea is, okay, if labor growth stays at this level and productivity starts to go up, which it probably eventually will, that means, again, higher wages, right? Because you pr pay productive workers more than you pay uh, regular uh, non-productive workers, let's say. Um, and so with all these, you know, things on the horizon, all these concerns on the horizon, she was absolutely right not to take her foot off the gas. Um, and yes, I still believe that the ECB will likely cut before the Fed. This is just my opinion. And I think when they do cut, they will be far more aggressive than the Fed. Uh, just because of all the other metrics that we just talked about, because of their activity, because of their, you know, growth. But at the same time, she's going to try and hold this for as long as she can to make sure that inflation is at a level which is, you know, sustainable, at, at a low level that is sustainable. And it's it's really interesting because, you know, as you mentioned, this is a zone that is much more sensitive to interest rates. You could argue England is as well. And yet these were central banks that were ostensibly much more hawkish than the Fed. And the U.S. is in a position where it's much less sensitive to interest rates, maybe outside of government spend, small businesses and more vulnerable consumer balance sheets. And so it's it's such a contrast. And I think it's something that is starting to have an impact on markets, on price discovery and currency pairs. We saw the euro surge against the dollar. The dollars really let go a lot of those gains that we've seen. We saw uh, the, the pound surge against the dollar, and it's starting to also turn that trend around. But another area, Aisha, as we get into looking ahead to this very interesting turnabout from the Bank of Japan, we've seen a huge rally in the yen versus the dollar. The Fed saying, you know what, we're probably done with hiking, cuts are on the way. The Bank of Japan saying, you know what, we're probably done with easing, hiking is on the way. This is a very interesting kind of inflection point, if you will, because often is the case that there's more harmony among these key central banks, the Fed and the Bank of Japan. And yet this time there's not. And Ueda has this mandate and he seems to be following it to more get closer and closer to normalization and sort of hand off the reins to the fiscal side to do some more of the heavy lifting as they look at pushing wages up. What do you think we can expect from the Bank of Japan as we move forward? Do you think that this normalization process is something that begins in the first quarter of next year? I absolutely think, uh, yes, it will be next year. So a lot of people were talking about uh, a change next week. So the meeting is on the 19th of December. Um, but I don't think we're going to see a change this week. Uh, or sorry, next week. And what I think will happen is maybe they will start to soften their language and make way for that change. But they're not going to make any major changes uh, next week. Having said that, just to take a step back and see where we stand right now. So GDP has come in negative in Japan, right? So last quarter's GDP came in at minus 0.7% after the revision. Now, 
this is real GDP. And one of the things that we're seeing there, which is bringing down the GDP, is consumption. And the reason that consumption is flat, real consumption is flat to negative, actually, it's actually negative, is because we still have inflation, which is increasing. So the idea for the Bank of Japan was to overshoot on inflation, to make sure that inflation is broad-based and takes hold, because Japan has been contending with deflation for the better part of, you know, the last 30 years, I want to say. So given that situation, they really, really wanted to see a situation where inflation is not driven by supply or like the tightness in supply, but rather this takes hold and, you know, is driven more by real consumption. Now, that's not what's happening. It's Unfortunately, we're seeing food inflation at very high levels right now. Food is at 8.6% year on year, which is tremendously high. And out of that, fresh food is about 15, anywhere between 15 to 19%, which is super high, right? So for the everyday person where wages have not gone up yet, this is a, a very difficult situation to sustain. So they're not consuming, right? On the other hand, he also wanted to see real wages go up. So in terms of real wages, I don't think he will wait anymore for real wages to become positive. It's negative right now. And the reason he is not going to wait is because we've already seen a lot of these unions, the labor unions, already talk about increasing wages next year. So that spring wage negotiation that happens, <clears throat> that's sort of been pulled forward in a way that, you know, discussions have taken place and everybody's ready for wages to go up next year. So with this information in mind, he knows that real wages will start to rise soon. It may not become positive immediately, but it will start to rise. So I don't think he's going to wait for it to become positive. On the other hand, inflation needs to be controlled. So yes, I understand that if you hike, there should be a decline in GDP. But in this case, what will happen is the real number will come down, as in the inflation will come down, and we'll probably see a jumpstart in consumption in that respect. Having said all of this, He's walking a very, very narrow tightrope, right? So any ch drastic change in the wrong direction is going to send this whole thing flying into a mess, right? So he's yes. going to be very careful. So I think even if he does change policy, as you've seen with the yield curve control, he increased the ban, then he's kind of removed the ban, he's kept a soft target. You know, there are various things is that he's step by step in a very gradual, paced manner so that things don't blow up over there. So I think the first step will be from negative interest rate policy to zero interest rate policy. And he'll likely hold that ZERP for a bit before he starts moving into positive territory. Because don't forget, yields are positive, right? And so as soon as he moves into ZERP, yields will go higher, bond yields will go higher. So that in itself will do a lot of tightening in the system. Yes. Um, so, yeah, this is this is what I think the you know path will be for a while. I'm not going to talk about the whole year right now, but I think at least for the first quarter, we see them make a decision of moving into ZERP as it's zero yeah. interest rate. I, I agree. I think we're we're headed towards 
the end of the NERP era. Europe was first. Japan took a little while. They're going to get there. The amount of global debt that had been priced with negative interest rates has shrank, I think, 95% from its peak. So we're kind of moving beyond the era of negative interest rate policy. And I like what you said about that tightrope, because if any central bank has a most unenviable tightrope to navigate, it really is the Bank of Japan, a country where they have 260% government debt to GDP and where the Bank of Japan owns a significant amount of that same debt, over 50% of it. And they're a huge player in the ETF and equity market. So what does that mean for us? Well, one of our ideas at Macrovisor was long Japan, short China. It worked out really well this year. We took it off. And we're actually much more interested in being long the yen here. So let's talk about this idea of momentum meets macro equals opportunity. Because earlier in the year, we saw China was looking unhealthy, that the reopening never really took shape the way it should, and that she was continuing to sort of do these ham-fisted authoritarian crackdowns that were scaring foreign capital out of the country. In fact, 2023 has been the first year that foreign capital has exited China, I think, since 1995. So that told us there's likely to be further downside in Chinese equities. And indeed, there has been rather remarkable downside. On the other side of that, Japan ended up being the most easy central bank with some of the most attractive stock valuations. And we had really oracles like Uncle Buffett himself entering Japan, kind of telling us the coast is clear for now. Let's make some money. And so we saw a lot of these signs from Japan telling us there was room for equities to move higher. And of course, also the yen was absolutely getting obliterated, which tends to be good for Japanese equities as long as it's not too much too fast. Now we're on the other side of that. Now we're going towards a situation where the Bank of Japan is going to tighten. Now, is it going to become the tightest central bank in the developed world? No, absolutely not. They don't have the flexibility to do that. But what matters is the differential, the rate of change, and the fact that the, the outcomes of different global central banks are becoming further and further removed from each other. The Bank of Japan looking to end their credit cycle, the Fed getting closer and closer to wanting to start a new one in the United States. And I think that that's one of the reasons that the long yen short dollar trade ends up looking a little bit attractive here after such a fantastic run for the dollar against the yen. quite frankly many other currency pairs there are now opportunities in some of these areas and also that strengthening of the yen could lead to some unwinding of some of these yen hosted carry trades if you will and for folks out there listening that aren't aware of what that means if i'm going over to japan and i'm able to borrow at negative or very low nominal interest rates and then i can take that same yen and i can convert it into dollars and buy higher interest rate products in the united states or speculate in equities well some of that borrowing becomes a little less advantageous as the u.s is lowering rates and japan is raising rates and so some of that unwinding could be also driving strength in the yen. So it's just something to consider as we go into particularly the first quarter of 2024. And as Aisha said, we're looking at that turnabout from Ueda, slow but steady, but still a turnabout nevertheless. At the same time, the Fed is saying, you know what, we're probably done unless inflation comes back. And, and Goldman now saying the Fed could actually cut as early as March. So it'd be very interesting to see how that plays out. But in our minds, that gives us cause to look at the yen. We also just shared a trading idea, an investment idea, I should say, about an opportunity in the energy space. Because as Aisha said, 
we don't really see energy prices going much lower next year, if anything, basing and potentially rising. And that gives some of these players in the energy space some potential to keep running. This is an idea available for Macrovisor Premium members. You can always sign up for a seven-day free trial on our website so you can try before you buy. We also recently shared some ideas in the defense space, two overlooked names, one of which is up over 10% since we shared it after earnings confirmed our thesis that this government migration, this data center to cloud migration is continuing and it's picking up steam. And they're a defense heavy contractor. We just got the defense budget from the house. Ostensibly, they're on break, but they had enough time to pass a new record-breaking defense budget approaching $900 billion, and that, of course, gives more funding to that same defense contracting industry. So it's bullish for some of those names. So we'd like to thank everyone for tuning in. This is a really fun discussion. We hope you'll check out our website at macrovisor.com. You can sign up for our free newsletter. If you like the content, you can always do a free trial for seven days. And as we close out, Aisha, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with everyone? So going into the end of the year, I think there's no reason to fight this market. We don't see a very strong correction here. In fact, a lot of this bullishness was pent up in the system. And I think with in the market's mind, the Fed is pivoting, right? I think the next stage from here will be the situation where we either see inflation increase uh, or come back again or we see the labor market start to deteriorate and you know we see unemployment start to rise drastically and if that happens it's likely that growth will fall massively and you know the us will go into a recession so there's that hard landing situation there on the one hand and on the other hand you have a situation where if you don't have a hard landing and the fed is aiming for a soft landing and he's bringing back all this credit and he's bringing back all this spending and the consumption you're going to see inflation start to rise again so i think no matter how you play it next year it's not going to be a win-win situation for the macro i think the macro takes a beating at least the first two quarters will be quite bumpy um, thereafter, things may start to improve. Um, however, that's not to say that that reflects on the market. What we've seen this year is even though we've had terrible activity data, we've had, you know, GDP, you know, falter here and there in the beginning. We've had, you know, uh, a banking crisis, but the market's still reaching all-time highs, right? So it's not necessary that the market has to reflect what the macro is doing. But from a macro perspective, we do think it's going to be a for really bumpy first two quarters. Absolutely. It was interesting yesterday, adding on to your point about inflation potentially coming back, that that was the best day in 2023 for the Bloomberg Commodity Index. Not what you want to see if you're the Fed making the all clear mission accomplished statement the day before. So thanks everyone for tuning in to this episode of the Macrovisor podcast. If you listen to us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or elsewhere, feel free to give us a review. If you have any questions or topics that you'd like to ask us or suggest to us, write us an email, hello at macrovisor.com. Until next time, this is Mayhem and Aisha signing off. <laughs>